Road cycle racing is the ultimate test of endurance. This is a sport which tests the outer limits of the body and mind. This is going to be a shoulder-to-shoulder battle now. For well over a hundred years, road cycling has broken the hardest men in sport. Of those that have survived, only a handful have stood out. The three most coveted races in the world are the Giro d'Italia, the Tour de France and the World Championships. It's a mere four months from the first day of the Giro in May to the climax day of the Worlds in September. Stephen Roach is trying to save the jersey so he can fight another day. To win any one of these races is to secure a place in cycling history. To win two is the stuff of legend. On the 6th of September 1987, on a damp day in a small Austrian town, a maintenance fitter from Dundrum County Dublin crossed the finish line in Irish colours. He'd won all three races, and he'd done it in the same season, over just 15 weeks. His name? Stephen Roach. Stephen Roach has gone. If this happens, Stephen Roach could be the winner of this race, the Tour de France, Tour of Italy. Can it be possible? I still remember the pride and excitement of this moment. And now it's going to be the World Championship for Stephen Roach is the champion of the world. As a then 17-year-old, I watched a man who was born and raised barely four miles from me doing something that belonged to a different world. He'd won the triple crown of road racing, a feat achieved only once before him and never since. 30 years have passed since Roach crossed that finish line. Since then, the sport of cycling has seen some magnificent moments. It's also seen some dark days. Days which have caused some to wonder whether any achievement on a bike was really credible at all. Disgraced American cyclist Floyd Landis has admitted to systematic use of performance-enhancing drugs. You'd have to be very naive to think that because Lance Armstrong retired, the problem is solved. The problem didn't start with him. It doesn't end with him. You know, it's still there. Team Festina, the number one team in the world, has been removed from this year's tour. Now, this comes on the heels of an admission that there was a doping plan in place for the use of performance-enhancing drugs. The dark side of the sport makes stories about bike racing from any era difficult to tell. When we recount cycling stories from days past, are we dealing in historical fact or naively buying into a fairy story? Most of the time, it's impossible to say. Roach himself has been at the centre of controversy. In 2000, an Italian judge posed questions about his final season as a professional, six years after his Triple Crown. So the story that I'm going to tell you here is of the events of one rider and one season. That of Stephen Roach in 1987. Why? Because it may just be the greatest individual achievement in the history of Irish sport. I'd never met Stephen Roach until last month when I arrived at his hotel room in Paris. He was there to commentate on the Giro for French TV. We started chatting, and I'd tell him that a fortnight earlier, I'd met his first ever cycling coach, Noel O'Neill, back in Dundrum. How I remember him well was, um, I, I organised these sprints just to see what, uh, test the speed, what speed they had, and uh, test their standard. And uh, we went up to the Ballyogan Road. It was the first training night of the newly reformed Orwell Wheelers. Fifteen youngsters turned up, including a 13-year-old Stephen Roach. So the first set of sprints, Stephen finished 15th on 11 seconds. All the others were faster. The second set, the same time, 
moved them up to fifth, where all the others were slowing down. And the third one, he moved up to second. Stephen's time remained the same. This was very interesting because it was the first time I had seen this happening. Because normally in sprinting, you get slower with each sprint. Their first sprint is the fastest, and then you get slower. Years later, then I realised that this was the recovery power that Stephen had and the stamina he had. And um, it shone through in later years. So it seems he had natural talent. But talent on its own won't win you a race that goes on for over three weeks. What it takes is a desire to win whatever the race throws at you. And Roach, at the age of 13, knew it himself when he first tasted victory in a club race. Paul Tansy in the club had a good bike, but his bike wasn't good enough for him, so he got Noel O'Neill's bike, which is a full-blown racing bike. So um, Paul got Noel's bike, and I got Paul's bike. We raced around the Ballyogan Road, and we're going down then for the last lap, and we're tearing down from the Golden Ball with Paul Tansy over Humpback Bridge and sharp left. And Paul was leading, but he went over Humpback Bridge too fast and missed the left. And I turned around quickly left and up the hill. And I always remember sprinting up that hill. I wasn't even, hadn't even got my hands on the handlebars. I had my hands on my legs, pumping my legs up and down to try and stay away from Paul, who was chasing hard behind me. And uh, that was my, uh, my first win, of course, of the, in the club. But I'm sure Paul, Paul remembers because uh, he was pretty upset that I beat him because he was older than me. I was riding his bike, so um, I'm sure he hasn't forgotten it. A love affair with the bike began, and it blossomed six years later when, at 19, he entered the biggest stage race in Irish cycling, the Ross. Again, Stephen Roach was prepared to lead them out. A dangerous tactic unless there are energy reserves, and Shannon Aero Club kept a watching brief overhead. Few believed this teenager could win it against the maturity and strength of Europe's top amateurs. But being interviewed out the window of the media car, it was clear he didn't need other people to believe in him. And I have some of the Ross footage there. Michael Carroll is driving along beside me. I'm in the Finney's Park. I'm leading the, the Ross. I have two other guys on my wheel. I'm after breaking away from the main pack. And Michael Carroll comes along beside me and he says, Stephen, who do you fear most in this group? I says, nobody. Who would, time for time now. Who would you worry about with this group? No one. No one. And looking back on it now, and I showed people, they all laugh because there, there I was, I was cocky. I was more looking forward to the Ross dinner that Sunday night, because it was a girl in work I fancied. I wanted to bring her to the, to the, to the, to the dinner. So uh, I was more uh, taken up with that than actually uh, winning the Ross. His childhood clubmate Paul Tansy already knew one thing about Roach that others would later learn. Friend or foe, any rider who stood in his way, was the enemy. Stephen wanted control of that race, and it was very, very clear from the very first stage that he wanted to win it and he wasn't going to let anybody else certainly his teammates stand in the way and he didn't expect those teammates to help him he was going to do it on his own which he eventually did in 1979 at 19 Roach won the Ross to this day the youngest to have achieved it nonchalantly giving interviews from the bike all the way to the finish line in the Phoenix Park nine days have passed nine stages each telling its own story but there was one master, a young man now on his way home to his mother in Dundrum, for his first home-cooked meal in over a week. Steak. Steak and ice cream. But Stephen had bigger dreams. It was almost 1980, Olympic year, and Roach was on the Irish team. 
Before the Games, he wanted to try his hand in an arena where the sport was at its most competitive, mainland Europe. The legendary Prisian cycling club, ACBB, had given him a six-month stint riding as an amateur and he jumped at the chance, thinking it may be his gateway to getting a contract as a professional after the Olympic Games. He got six months' leave of absence from his job as a maintenance fitter at Hughes's Milk Dairy and at 20, packed his bags for Paris. The night before I left, my parents had a tea for me with some friends. During the course of the evening, Peter Quinian said to me, Stephen, you know, people say here that Stephen comes from the city, Sean Kelly came from Carrigan Shore, so Stephen can't do what Sean Kelly has done, and that the only tour Stephen Roach will do is a tour of the Eiffel Tower, and he'll be home again. So Stephen, just please prove them wrong. I don't want to see you here till October. With his saddle and handlebars packed in a suitcase, he flew to Paris on an awful January day. His early fortunes were mixed, a bunch of seconds and thirds. The coach at the club, an elder statesman of continental cycling called Mickey Vega, warned Roach that second place wasn't going to cut it to get a pro contract. Armed with this knowledge, Roach found himself in front with just one other rider in one of the biggest races on the continent, the amateur Paris-Roubaix. The other rider was riding behind Roach, the perfect place from which to jump and win the race. When? The team car came up to me and the windscreen had been broken on the car because of the stone hit it. And Mickey Vagon, was the, he was must have been 75 or almost 100 years of age, uh, driving the car behind me. He had a big, big overcoat on him and an old hat pulled in over his ears. All I could see was his eyes, his mouth. And he's driving up behind me, blowing hard. He says, Roach, Mr. Roach, you don't win, you're going home. So I'm saying, what can I do? What can I do? The guy's sitting on my wheel. You don't win, you go home. He duly won. At the start of the following season, he found himself with a professional contract on one of the biggest teams in cycling, Peugeot. It gave him a bit of money, a bit of status, and Paul Tanzi remembers that he intended to enjoy it. Every time he came home, he had a flashy car. And I remember the first time he came home, he had this beautiful white Peugeot, I think it was, because Peugeot was sponsoring the team and he was the envy. And of course, he had a girlfriend on his arm at that stage as well, Lydia. And, uh, you know, he looked the, the film star, the, you know, the model of uh, a success. It wasn't just at home that Roach was turning heads. His career took off like a rocket and he started winning big races. Sean Kelly had been riding pro on the continent for a few years already. And he remembers that people were beginning to take notice. I think if something was coming for a while, I knew Roach was, you know, doing well. And then he became professional, I think. That's when he really hit the headlines. You know, his first year, he won Paris and he's toured to Corsica. Yeah, I met him in some of the races just after that. I think it would have been, you know, some of the Aldens Classics. We were uh, two, you know, young professionals, um, you know, out there in Europe. I suppose, um, you know, it was... Uh, it was difficult at that time because English speakers were, you know, um, not a known thing in the professional peloton. But of course, you know, when we when you talk together, being a, being Irish, being a paddy, uh, you know, you have that relationship. So you you know you talk much more freer. And I think you know, when I met Stephen, you know, of course we talked about the races and all of that, but we talked about you know things in general as well. And uh, it was it would be much more relaxed than it would be with you know the foreign riders. Over the next six seasons, Roach's stature steadily grew. He was beginning to taste the glory of professional racing. Things were looking up not only on the bike, but in his home life as well. By 1984, he had met and married a French girl, Lydia, and they had had a son they named Nicholas. Lydia had spotted qualities in Stephen, apparently just too charming to resist. Things like... 
with blue eyes and it should be chic. He's a kind person. It's a very nice person. And, uh, and my first Christmas here was really great. Like, the only thing I can remember him in his mommy's fridge, looking for cake or cream or, or pudding. <laughs> Each time I will go down the stairs, the fridge be open. <laughs> he was looking for something. In 1985, at the age of 25, Stephen took a third place in the Tour de France and just weeks later found himself racing one of the end-of-season six-day events. Six-day events take place not on the road but on a banked indoor track in an amphitheatre of noise. It's lucrative but tough and dangerous, dicing at high speed no more than a tyre width away from the riders around you. Sean Kelly remembers they were always popular with agents and managers. I remember myself, you know, the six days were a big thing at that time. Financially, they were very, very rewarding. Um, the managers, of course, who, you know, are the Mr. 25%, uh, they hound you all the time. And I actually signed to do um, a six-day in Paris, but then I faked an injury in the end because at the end of the season, I was so tired physically and mentally, uh, I just felt I wasn't able to do it. Roach opted to ride the sixth day of Paris and found himself, with his teammate, vying for victory on the final day, when catastrophe struck. So we were chasing for the, for the points on the last lap and I blew, blew out my back tyre, which sent me down to finishing straight, like maybe 50k an hour maybe, tumbling all over the place with a fixed wheel. So I, I hit my knee very hard on my head and uh, my knee was sore. In a relatively insignificant race, Roach had sustained a very significant injury, one that was to intermittently plague the rest of his career. He had just signed a handsome contract with the Italian team Carrera, but the damage he sustained to his knee destroyed the following season. So the pressure was on, and Carrera saying, well, Stephen, we signed you up as a third in the Tour de France in 85. You haven't done much. Can we please renegotiate your contract? So I'm saying, well, you know, when you get married, it's for better or for worse. Hopefully you've seen the worst but now let me just see if I can show you the better side of things. So please give me a bit of, bit, of, bit of space. His 1986 season was a washout. After two knee operations and only a handful of appearances on the bike, the year was finally coming to an end. The deal with Carrera was simple. Start winning races or your contract is gone. When it began, Roach could not have known what 1987 had in store for him, but the signs were positive. His daughter Christelle was born and he'd finally managed to get on top of his knee trouble. In the spring he came within a fraction of winning major early season races like Liège-Bastogne-Liège and Paris-Nice. So as he sat on the starting ramp of the Giro d'Italia on the 21st of May 1987, Roach was now a different rider. What he'd gone through in the previous 12 months had not come easy. Ahead of him, lay 4,000 kilometres and 23 days of racing. And now we're looking at Roach on the start line. Stephen Roach, surprisingly, not wearing a crash helmet. Phil Liggett's commentary has been synonymous with cycling for four decades, and he remembers that in 1987, the Italian public had a clear favourite. Roberto Vicentini is a millionaire's son, drives a Ferrari, he's a playboy, he's got the usual greasy Italian hair. But he wasn't just the darling of the nation. He was also the man to whom Roach would have to sacrifice his own chances of winning. The rules of cycling demand total loyalty to your team leader, and Vicentini was Roach's team leader. 
Skepers, Miller, Roach, Lecarreta, Vicentini e Munoz. If Roach was to win the Giro, he'd be the first English-speaking rider in its 70-year history to do so. But to pull that off, he'd need the help of a team. And his team, Carrera, were Italian. No prizes for guessing where their loyalties lay. There were eight other riders in Roach's team in the Giro. He was about to find out the hard way that he could rely on only one. The Belgian cyclist, Eddie Skeppers. What, what I uh, remember me was that, that there were two uh, captains, uh, uh, Vicentini and, and Steven, and that, that the race himself will uh, demonstrate who, who, who will, would be uh, the, the leader uh, uh, after all. The prize that both Vicentini and Roach were vying for was the pink jersey. The Italians call it the Malia Rosa. The jersey is given out every day to the person who is the overall leader in the race so far. Vicentini briefly took the pink jersey on day one. But by day three, Roach had the better time overall, and now he was in pink. Roach's understanding of team tactics was that whoever had the jersey would command the loyalty of the other. So Roberto Vicentini should now have been helping Stephen because he was leading the race. And a rider is never in more need of help than when he crashes. And one day on, a sta- on one stage we came to a, a town which was a herping corner not far from the finish. Um, and there was a crash, I fell off in it. And as I got back on the bike again, I'm looking up and Roberto's going around me and sprinting up the road. So he could have waited for me or asked me, was I okay? There was no love lost as Roach held the pink jersey all the way to day 13. This stage was a long time trial, written not against others, but on your own, as fast as you can. That morning, Roach went out for his practice ride of the circuit. Absolute concentration and quiet was key. He called it his bubble. Roberto Vicentini was driven up alongside him in a team car with every intention of bursting it. We got down into the time trial into uh, San Marino. Roberto didn't want to go on the bike because it was raining. So I'm riding along in the rain and every, every few minutes, Roberto's coming along beside me saying, Stefano, which way is the wind coming from? Stefano, what gear are you riding? Stefano, all these questions, and it was, I'm in my bubble. Three hours before my, my start time, I can then have my lunch. And my lunch is on the table, and Roberto on the far side of the table. So I'm sitting down again, and Roberto, Stefano, 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 all these questions again. And I want to tell him where to go, but he's a teammate of mine. It was a very frustrating uh, situation. Roberto's plan worked. He beat Roach by two minutes that day and took the pink jersey. Now Roberto Vicentini was race leader. When Stephen crossed the finish line on that stage, he realised for the first time just how fickle his team's loyalty had been until then. The, the insulting part about it was that I had um, had the jersey myself for a week and I felt quite important in Italy, in cycling, in my own team. And yet I came across the finishing line and there was nobody there to give me a towel. Nobody to say, Stephen, poor you, what happened to you? Here's a towel, here's a drink. Um, don't worry, you know, your day will come. Nobody. Empty, nobody. So, but then we, we I go back to my, my hotel room and I'm watching television and Roberto's on television. Vicentini was leading the Giro, but there were still 12 days of racing left. Roach got back to his room. Eddie Skeppers, who he always shared with, was already there. The TV was on and Roberto, cock a hoop, was talking about his plans for the following month when the Tour de France was taking place. The journalist says to him, well, Roberto, now you've beaten Roach, you're two minutes ahead of him. Uh, that means now you're the kind of unique leader of the Carrera team. So Stephen now will have to ride kind of 100% percent 
for you. But then I suppose when he goes to the tour, you will go to the tour and you will work exclusively for him. Roberto politely and honestly says to the journalist, yeah, yeah, Stephen's going to work for me, OK, but uh, I'm not going to the tour, I'm going on holidays. So I looked at AD and I said, well, he's being honest anyway. He's, he's, he wants me to ride for him, but there's no payback. He, he wanted that we uh, will working for him. And then if it's uh, time to, to, do, to give something back, he will go on holiday. And that was, wasn't so nice of, of, of uh, his side. Skeppers and Roach hatched a plot. Roach would give himself every chance of taking back the pink jersey by riding not behind Roberto Vicentini, but near the front of the race. And they would do this on the stage to Zapata two days later. Depending on your perspective, the stage to Zapata would become a byword for glory or for treachery. On this stage, Roach got away from Vicentini. He now looked like he could win the Giro for himself. Phil Liggett. When he attacked on the road to Zapata, that really is totally against the, the rules. You don't attack your team, especially when your team leader is in the leader's jersey. You don't shoot off down the road. So I think you better ask Stephen about that one, because in all honesty, that, that's not done. That's against the gentleman's code of conduct. Um, and that, this is why I guess the crowd suddenly turned against him too. Because, it, But it, what he told me was we had a determined guy here who believed in his own ability. As has so often happened, you've got to find out what you're worth. And if you're on the same team sometimes, as far as you're concerned, tough. I want to win this race. Roach looked like he was riding himself into the race lead. His sole loyal teammate Skeppers by his side when he heard the sound of a car engine behind him. Until finally the car came up. I said, Stephen, uh, what are you doing? I decided I'd, I'd go ahead and... No, 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 Stephen, don't understand. You went down that hill so fast, they're everywhere. The biggest group is two. So um, they aren't going to catch you. But that's OK, like, and I can win the Giro. Tell Roberto, stop racing, stop, 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 stop chasing me. So I said, Stephen, you don't understand. I'm telling you now to stop. So I, I said that uh, you just tell Roberto... He either stops riding behind me or when he catches me to keep something in the tank because he's going to need it, because he's going to go again. It's declaring war, that's the way it is. I'm riding with Eddie beside me and the car comes up beside us and says, um, Eddie, you better wait for Roberto. So Eddie turns to me and says, Stephen, like, I'll stay with you, but tonight you better defend me because I, I'm going to get sacked. Don't worry, Eddie, I'll, I'll cover you. I, I was next to, to uh, Stephen and uh, I say, yeah, uh, no, I have to obey uh, the instruction. I have to wait for Vicentini. But uh, if you uh, uh, tell me that you will care for me uh, next year to, to, uh, 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 that I can go uh, in the team where, where you uh, will going uh, uh, next year, I stay, I stay with you. And he, he said, uh, without thinking, stay here. Uh, I will care uh, for you also uh, next year. The following season, Roach was as good as his word. But right now, there were more pressing tasks at hand. Merely beating Vicentini on this stage would not stop him from being sent home that evening for his betrayal. But he knew that his team would never publicly humiliate themselves by sending home the pink jersey of the Giro d'Italia. So about a kilometre or so from the top of the hill, Eddie says to me, Stephen, Stephen, now is the day, now is the time you win the Giro. you got to go now. The big story on the day and the days to follow will be the rivalry between Roach and Vicentini. Now here's Roach, 6.44, 45, the pink jersey's gone. In fact, Roach had taken the pink jersey by just five seconds. So, Roberto Vicentini disappointed, but for the Irish fans, a great day in Sabada. Stephen Roach has regained the pink jersey. Eddie Skeppers 
has no doubt that these five seconds were the difference between the 1987 season happening and not happening at all. I think if he had lost, for example, five or six seconds more and didn't have the pink jersey, that probably uh, he, he was sent home uh, and, and I with him and uh, there was no victory and there was not uh, a victory of the Tour de France uh, later on. The Italian public exploded. The press accused Roach of treason, this young Irish upstart double-crossing his Italian teammate and reigning Giro champion. But the following morning, Stephen realised it wasn't just the Italian sporting press who were furious. Next day, riding down from the hotel down to the start line, there was uh, people had flags up with um, like Roach Bastardo, uh, Roach Go Home, and they had all these names for myself, Eddie, one was Judas, one was Satan. And uh, so we get down to the start line and I'm, 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 I'm kind of have to be protected by the police. And we start on the, on the race then, and I'm very quickly recognised that it's going to be very dangerous because the people were pushing in at you. And then they were taking rice in their mouth, and then as I was coming past, some red wine and spitting it all at me as I was coming past. So um, the first day I had to then, I had Eddie riding one side of the road from me, and my team were nowhere because they weren't really climbers and they weren't interested in helping me either. Apart from one man, that is, Eddie Skeppers. I remember me the day after we start a climb and uh, I was in the front and, and Stephen was in the middle of us. And before us there were uh, the, the policemen uh, on, on, on motorcycles and they went with the boots forward to split the crowd away because they were, were yelling to uh, Stephen and he was easy to, to find in the peloton because with his pink jersey yeah, uh, everyone uh, could see uh, where, where he was. And uh, not on, only yelling, they tried to get him, to hurt him. It was, was very, very, very difficult for us and, uh, of course, for Steven. I was a little uh, in front of him and on his uh, right side so that the crowd have first to pass me, uh, for example, before they could touch at, at Steven. The team fell out with him, the crowd spit on him and he had to spend his life in his bedroom between stages and have his food sent upstairs. He couldn't eat with the team. Well, crikey, if you're not in love with your team on the stage race, you're in big trouble. But he also proves uh, the, the strength of the inner man and Roach uh, was, uh, was in a situation where he could become the first Irishman to win the Giro d'Italia Roach spent a full week like this battling against the public the press and his own team yet day after day he ground on refusing to be bowed my mechanic was exclusively assigned to look after my bike for fear that somebody might sabotage my bike and my master was assigned to make me food because they were afraid of them um, poisoning my food maybe here I was now saying to the Italians, like, do what you want, say what you want, I'm not going home. I'm going to Milan. I'm going to the finish. The demands were put upon him, off and on the bike. He was equal to all of them. Yes, Stephen Roach has won the stage and he's won the Giro. An Irishman has won a major world tour for the first time. Stephen Roach. I didn't want to stay for the final ceremony, so I got my prize, got my cup. I put my bags and everything else in the back of the car and drove back to Paris that night, five in the morning when we arrived home, and Eddie stayed in my house. And the following morning, at half past 10 or 10 o'clock where I was, myself and Eddie were back on the bikes again, just doing a warm down after our traveling and our Giro, preparing for the tour. As Roach and Skeppers went off on their training ride that morning, they had a grand total of 18 days before it all began again. The Tour de France was an even longer and tougher race. 25 days, 4,300 kilometres, 
over towering alpine mountain passes through tar-melting heat. The pink jersey was now a past conquest. All eyes were now on the yellow jersey, what the French call the maillot jaune, the leader's golden fleece in the Tour de France. Roberto Vicentini wasn't in this race. Like most of the bigger riders, he'd only entered one because the double of the Giro and Tour, as Phil Liggett recalls, was unthinkable. And Roach had now gone. 18 days down the road, he transferred from Italy to Germany because the Tour de France was starting in Berlin. And I said to, I said to Stephen, when he was getting ready to arrive, it was a team time trial in Berlin. Uh, and it, as I just said, Steve, fantastic, well done in winning the Giro. I said, he said, it means I can have a holiday here. He said, because the pressure's off now, I've won the Giro d'Italia. And at that point in time, unless he was pulling the wool over my eyes, he had no direct ambition to win the Tour de France. After all, he won the Tour of Italy. And so when he started in Germany, they raced him out through Stuttgart and into France. And a couple of days later, they were, they then became a superb battle. And Roach now was a marked man. He just won the Giro d'Italia. But had he recovered in 18 days to ride a race like the Tour de France? That was the big question. Roach rode the first two and a half weeks of the race quietly, staying in contention and pulling off one stage win, but generally keeping his head down. He eventually took the yellow jersey of race leader deep into the French Alps on the 19th stage. But he lost it the very next day to one of the world's best climbers and the man with whom he was about to have one of the greatest duels in cycling history, the Spanish rider Pedro Delgado. Pedro Delgado, the 27-year-old Spaniard who took the yellow jersey off Stephen Roach yesterday. Delgado was 25 seconds ahead of Roach overall. And today, they tackled the final great climb of the tour, La Plana. So my whole plan was to keep Delgado within one minute of, of uh, distance, so that keeping my options still open. So if I'm within a minute of Delgado, I can still win the tour. And I'm delighted to say Stephen Roach is happily lodged in that group riding very close to Pedro Delgado of Spain. Roach was confident he could beat Delgado by a minute or more in a time trial at the end of the Tour de France. Already behind overall, the way the mats were working out, Stephen could not allow Delgado to beat him by more than 35 seconds on La Plana today. 35 seconds, the magic number. I hit the um, La Plana, he attacked straight away. My, my plan was... Let him go and let him get some space. Hopefully I can recover and try and hold him to a minute, minute and a half. So the, the time checks were coming in, minute and 10, minute and 15, minute and 20. So I'm adding up my slums in my head. So my, my one minute um, plan was out the window. In those days, the radio tour is not like it is in these days where you can hear commentary all the way, loud and clear. These are crackles coming through the airwaves. But we know that at one stage, somebody had told us Delgado was two minutes ahead of Stephen Roach on the slopes of La Plana. And I was commentating and thinking, well, this is, he's cooked. If he's got his two minutes at the top here, uh, forget the time trial, Roach can't recover that time. It's impossible. Roach is now in serious trouble in this year's Tour de France because... And I hit him hard in the last four or five caves and I just give it everything I have. I don't know where he is. There's so much people on the roads. I can't hear time checks. I can't hear anything from the car. I can, hear, I can hear nothing. I'm looking up ahead. I see all the crowds, but I see cars, but don't know, know who's there. I don't know if he's there. I don't know a thing. And it was only when I came around the final corner about 200 metres ago, I saw the red car of the leader, of the race leader, and I saw Delgado, and I 
didn't really, really know, was it him? Is it him? What was happening? Then we saw Delgado come into our view on the television. But we didn't know where Roach was. We assumed a long, long way down by now. And in the back of the cars, I saw a pair of legs. And I looked at the legs and I went. And just who is that rider coming up behind? Because that looks like Roach. That looks like Stephen Roach. It's Stephen Roach who's come over the line. He almost caught Pedro Delgado. I don't and he was right behind him. And he crossed the line four seconds back of him. Four seconds behind. He almost caught Pedro Delgado on the line. Stephen Roach is now going to win this Tour de France. Well, I've never ever in my life seen a reaction to a climb like that. Roach but Roach had pushed himself way beyond his limits. Having crossed the line, he collapsed off his bike. A medical team battled through the scrum of journalists to find Stephen lying on the ground semi-conscious and placed an oxygen mask over his mouth. I always remember lying on the ground and the doctor uh, saying to me, um, Stephen, uh, move your legs in because the car was getting very close. I couldn't move my legs. Couldn't move my arms, couldn't move my legs. And I had to communicate with the doctor with my eyes. He was saying, Stephen, if you can hear me, just blink your eyes once. And that's, that's how we communicated for the first few minutes while I was lying on the floor. He is only a matter of three feet from me. I am now looking down on Stephen Roach, who is on the floor. Stephen collapsed at the base of my makeshift tribune, right there. And I grabbed the hand mic and ran round because we were live on TV. As they're forcing back cameras and photographers who are trying to see Stephen Roach. You might be able to hear them shouting here. But Stephen Roach... And I, I couldn't speak to him. And I was trying to get down to him, but I was sort of strapped onto the desk to just grab a word, which was impossible. And you could just about see two feet sticking out from under the melee of the people. The medics were trying to get to him. I mean, he looked at first as though Roach might have had a serious uh, heart attack or something. Who knows? Because he wasn't moving. But Stephen Roach is still sitting calmly on the floor. The doctor just looking him in the eyes, talking to him, making sure he's completely conscious. And this was, this was total chaos. And everybody else was trying to work out the seconds and the values. And Delgado was telling the press there and then, right by where I was, the Spanish television. Uh, he said, I've lost the Tour de France. He said, I needed two minutes. And it's not possible to win the Tour de France now. Obviously, Roach was taken away. They got him into the ambulance and he was gone. With the old diddle-de, klaxon on the old ambulance, gone down the mountain. Finished. Roach had suffered an oxygen debt. His body temporarily simply ran out of oxygen and stopped. It was five in the evening and Roach was brought back to his hotel. There were still four days of racing left and he was, as they say in cycling, cooked. Uh, totally cooked. And I, when I brought him back to my hotel, I got into my bed totally clothed. And about about seven, half past seven, my master Davo came along to me and said, Stephen, what do you want for dinner? I'll, I'll bring dinner, dinner up to you. Well, said, no, 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 I'm going down for, for dinner. If I don't go down for dinner, the guy will think the tour is won. So he came out of the room and I walked down the stairs rather than, rather than taking the lift and uh, walked into the restaurant where the teams were all sitting there and all I could hear was, he looks pale, uh, he looks very white and everyone's saying, oh, Stephen, you know, what you've done today is absolutely amazing, it's legendary stuff, it's amazing. And the back of my mind, I'm saying, well, you wait till tomorrow, you know. Not only did Roach turn up at the start line the following day, he outrageously attacked Delgado and stole 18 seconds back from him, dutifully took his minute in the time trial and stood on the podium on the final Sunday in Paris as winner. Stephen Roach 
issue collapsed so dramatically last Wednesday. Many of us feared he may not get back at all into the race. And here comes the main bunch now. And Stephen Roach has his arm in the air, 10 yards out. He's smiling. Stephen Roach of Ireland has won the Tour de France. A big win to the crowd from Stephen. After 115 hours of racing, he'd won the Tour de France by 40 seconds. He became only the fifth man in history to take the Giro and Tour in the same season. And Roach remembers that everybody wanted in on this slice of history. As you can imagine, on the Champs-Élysées, it was a fabulous, amazing day. But he had no time to savour it. Like, um, I remember being interviewed by someone, and he's telling me that there's, you know, French television had put together a fabulous clip of U2 uh, to the footage of the, of, the, of the Tour, and I'm saying I couldn't care less. All I wanted to do was get off and get home, you know? So, um, but then, you know, you, you have this... Uh, uh, the late Charles Hawhey was on Taoiseach was on the podium I think most uh, Irish people would expect uh, that I would go and be in Paris today uh, to pay a tribute and do honour to this great national hero Stephen Roach did the French government invite you? No, not exactly but they made it absolutely clear they'd be very welcome and of course Jacques Chirac the Prime Minister is a close personal friend of mine the following day Roach returned home to a parade on an open top bus through the streets of Dublin once upon a time the Tour de France was something remote something out Irish people only had dreams about, maybe even attending someday. In a crowd not seen since the visit of the Pope in 1979, hundreds of thousands of people stood by the roadside and cheered a cyclist, of all things. In the crowds along the route, many familiar faces, familiar to Stephen from the cycling days at home, from the Orwell wheelers. The following day was the 28th of July, and Roach went to ground for a month. Only one major race remained in the season, the World Championships. A one-day race over six and a half hours. For once, you ride it in your own national colours. It was to take place on the 6th of September, 1987, in a little Austrian town called Villach. According to the bookmakers here in Austria, the favourite today... The world's is a horrible, attritional race, which wears down riders before leaving the punch-drunk survivors to sprint it out for the finish. Of the group trying to stretch out again it's the sort of race ideally suited to Ireland's world-class sprinter, Sean Kelly. The weather conditions wasn't great on the uh, on the day. The morning was, you know, very wet and quite cold in it. So it turned out to be a, a really wearing down process. Ireland had a team of just five riders, barely half that of the continental superpowers of cycling. Half a team was going to mean double the effort. So it was really only when they woke up on the on the morning off, and I always I always shared a room with Sean on the worlds, and we opened the window and saw the rain. That was the first time I thought, well. This could be my day. You know, everybody opens the curtains in the morning time and we all look out. Some guys will say, terrible, it's raining. Those guys are beaten. Some guys won't ride well in the rain, they're gone. Some guys will fall off, they're gone. So all of a sudden you're 220 opponents and rivals. All of a sudden it comes down to a group of maybe 50 guys. And they're looking to make sure nobody comes from the back. Yes, they'll watch back now. They know the gap is there. They know that uh, for all the various countries, they're going to have teammates behind who are working for them. Uh, and, Stephen uh, went away, yeah, maybe three, five kilometres from the finish, and uh, he went all the way with about you know five or six other riders, if I recall rightly. So I'm kind of sitting there thinking, okay, well, they will they'll chase us down and they'll catch us. So I'll just try and make sure these guys stay together, that nobody gets away. And um, but I very quickly realised then that the guys behind were marking Sean, so they weren't going to catch us like. Then I realised, well, this is the kind of fine mess you got me to Sean, you know. <laughs> like, here I am in the front with four guys, and I'm the kind of the, the least 
uh, fast in the, in the sprint, so I'm going to be fifth. And all this work, all the time, effort we put into this world is going to be for a fifth place. So all of a sudden I start getting a bit upset about it because I have to kind of try and do something. And uh, it's Roach staying at the front and Roach just watching, making sure that no rider is going to attack on this final climb. He attacked maybe 150 metres out. There was a little bit of, you know, just looking at each other who was going to make the sprint 150, 200 metres out and he just attacked. Straight away I thought, OK, well, if I go down the inside as the gap's getting closed, if I get through barely and I might get a little gap, that's the option I chose. I went down the inside and the left-hand side as the gap was getting closer and uh, got through the gap, squeezed my elbows in and got through the gap, just about got through. Roach has made the global line. Oh, my goodness me, Stephen Roach has gone. If this happens, Stephen Roach could be the winner of this race, the Tour de France, Tour of Italy. I surprised Van Vliet and uh, Sorensen and, uh, and Goltz. They looked at each other for a couple of seconds and I was, by this time I'm moving away from them. And this is impossible. Like, I'm going to win this thing, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. I'm very, very tired. I can feel him closing down and the, the line's not coming. I'm, like, I'm watching the line there and sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. I'm thinking I'm going really, really fast, but the, the, last, the line's coming very, very slow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so my, to my great surprise, then I, I crossed the line uh, first. Can it be possible? The only man who's ever done this in the world before is Eddie Merckx. And now it's going to be the World Championship for Stephen Roach. is the champion of the world. Only the second man ever to win the three major races in the world in the history of cycling. And goodness me, Sean Kelly behind him is the happiest man in the world as well. And there is the result at his a few weeks later, Stephen Roach returned to Ireland to ride the Nissan Classic, a short stage race around the country. As newly crowned world champion, he wore the distinctive rainbow jersey. The race passed close to his home in Dublin's Dundrum, a nod to his monumental achievement. Paul Tansey, who had lent Roach his bike all those years back for his first win in Orwell Wheelers, was going through tough times. I didn't take part in a lot of those celebrations that a lot of the people of Dundrum did take part in. I, I couldn't because of, 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 of personal things that were going on. So I went out onto a quiet country road out in Wicklow to watch the race passing by. And I was on my own on the road. I just wanted to see the race. I'm, I'm a bike fan and I wanted to see the race. I knew Dundrum would be a great spectacle, but it wouldn't be racing. So I was standing on the side of the road near the Silver Strand in Wicklow and um, saw the bunch coming up. Stephen spotted me because it was on the side of the road, he stopped. He was wearing his rainbow jersey, and he came over. He said, hello. I said, I'm thinking of you. And that got me. Stephen stood in his world champion's rainbow jersey for a minute, talking with his boyhood clubmate, before sprinting on off up the road. In the years that followed, the knee injuries Stephen sustained in Paris during that six-day event returned to plague him, and he never recovered the form he showed in 1987. Despite winning another stage of the Tour de France, his career petered out in 1993, at a time when a sport, which had always had its difficulties, was at the beginning of its relationship with the performance-enhancing drug EPO. In 2000, an Italian judge said in a report that Roach had been one of a group of riders who took part in an EPO programme during 1993. To this day, and still now when I press him on it, 
Roach vehemently denies it. It depends on the way you're, on your education and the way you look at things. You know, I was told you don't you don't curse. You know, you, you don't spit in the street. You don't you're you're being you got to be um, respect your elders, uh, and you don't cheat. I always felt well. It's what you see in the mirror that counts. An Italian judge stated, "I've done this four-year inquiry into the alleged doping with um, blood doping with Conconi. I have found no evidence, but I must conclude." Yes, all these riders were on this scheme. Nobody ever called me and said, Stephen, are you part of this scheme? I've never been interviewed by a judge, never been phoned up or emailed, faxed. Nobody has ever spoken to me about the doping thing uh, in Italy, about the Conconi affair. Nobody, only journalists. Um, so if I had been a high-profile name within this Conconi case, I would have at least thought... I would have been at least summoned to a, to a hearing or I'd have been interviewed over it. And it does actually hurt me a lot. Whatever what happened or people think might have happened in 92, 93, at the end of my career, why bring 87 into it? Were you tempted? You never when you were down When you were down in your luck, were you tempted? I was never that down. I was never down enough to be encouraged or to be tempted. So you didn't dope during your career? No, I had no need to dope. I had a, a lot of class natural class, a lot of a natural, natural ability. And my, my big thing was, like, I want to be able to sleep at night knowing that tomorrow nothing's going to come back and haunt me. A few weeks previous to interviewing Stephen, I had asked Phil Liggett to put the Triple Crown into some sort of perspective. It's not difficult to put into perspective just what Stephen Roach achieved because only one other person has done it. So that should say it all. Eddie Merckx, in my mind, was and is and has been the greatest bike rider in the world. And he's the only other man to have done the big three. I don't think, personally, it will ever be achieved again. So Roach and Merckx might go down in history as being only the, the two guys who have done it. You can go, everybody who loves sport, their sport, be it hurling, be it cricket, be it rugby, uh, they always think they've seen the ultimate in their sport. But no. This, this particular thing, this trifecta, was the greatest achievement ever. 30 years on, Roach seems strangely unaware of the magnitude of his achievement. It's almost as if it's left a bigger mark on me than on him. As we part, I tell Stephen what Phil Liggett has said to me. And it seems that all at once, a reality begins to dawn. Phil Liggett says, in 1987, he saw and was proud enough to be involved with, in some shape or form, the greatest thing that was ever done in a sport. What's your response? <sighs> Thank you, Phil. Um, it's... Uh, it's it, um, coming, from, coming from Phil, it's, it's... It's such a compliment coming from Phil is, um, I don't know what to say, actually. It's, uh, I kind of go straight to the bone. You proud of yourself? Probably could have done better. <laughs>